Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession comes from Psalm 25, verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness sake, O Lord. Later this morning, we'll hear uh, that Nehemiah cried out to God, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. May we too cry out to God for mercy, that he might remember us. just review what we've uh, covered so far in Nehemiah. So if you want to page back to the first chapter and, and just think of it this way, uh, Nehemiah is all about building, rebuilding, we could say. In chapter one, we learned that rebuilding takes prayer, right? Nehemiah prays uh, before uh, action is taken. In chapter two, we learned that rebuilding takes preparation. Remember that Nehemiah made lots of plans and was ready to execute them when it was time. Chapter 3, we learned that rebuilding takes teamwork. We have to work together, and we're working side by side in community as we rebuild. And chapter 4, we learned that rebuilding often breeds opposition, and we see opposition uh, as we seek to do God's will. So that's where we've been so far. Today, we find rebuilding involves reformation according to the Word of God. Nehemiah pursues biblical social justice in this chapter. He serves his people sacrificially. So that's the, the basic summary. Let's uh, walk through each verse here and then apply it to our lives. First of all, in verse, uh, the first five verses, we have the problem. We have the problem. And there are really three categories or three problems described. It, it's given in quite a grammatically blunt uh, form, right? There were those who said, you get in verse 2, and then verse 3, same thing. There were also some who said... So there, that happens three times. There's three kind of different problems going on here. The first one in verse 2 is just basic poverty. There's not much food to go around. We've got a lot of kids and not enough food to feed them all. <laughs> That's the basics of verse 2. The second problem is they're going into debt to buy food. That's verse 3. We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses. And the third problem in verse 4, we have borrowed money for the king's tax and we've even sold our sons and daughters as slaves. They're, they're uh, needing to sell their children into slavery just to pay taxes uh, or just to buy food. And they have no way to pay it back because they've sold their land to somebody else. So now they, they have no way to produce an income. They're totally stuck. Uh, so th that's the basic problem that, that we have that Nehemiah responds to. Uh, one interesting thing as we come to verse uh, 7... Uh, Nehemiah convicts them of, uh, of sin, the nobles and the rulers. He says, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. And uh, the, the interesting exegetical question here is, is this talking about excessive interest or any interest at all? And it's, grammatically, it's unclear from the text here in this verse which it is. But what is clear is what we read in Leviticus 25. It's also in Exodus 22 where God forbids charging any interest when you lend to the poor among God's people. 
That's a very clear law God lays down. If the poor are in need of cash in the short term, you don't take advantage of that and charge them an arm and a leg for it. God forbids that. So that's uh, very important. You might want to know, how did I get to Leviticus 25? How do you go from Nehemiah 5 to Exodus 22? And this is important. There's two ways that, that I got there. But one is uh, personal memory or just familiarity with the Bible. And I'm not saying this to show off or anything, but just to say this is how things ought to go when we hit some life situation. We ought to think, doesn't Nehemiah 6 say something about this? Or doesn't 1 Corinthians 9 address what I'm facing right now? We ought to, we ought to be having those kinds of thoughts. And that's what I thought as I studied this. I, I think there's something in Deuteronomy or Exodus about charging interest. And so you go and research what God's word says. So that's one thing. We ought to have a basic familiarity with the Bible. Enough so, so that when we're going through situations in real life, that we think, the Bible says something about this somewhere. It's, it has some guidance for me here. And then we can go and, and find that. The second is basic Bible study. And here I wanted to bring up another remez. I haven't used the word remez in a while. Remember, that's a Jewish word, a rabbinical teaching called a hint. And I think Nehemiah is doing a remez here. Uh, the wording of outcry is the first part of that hint. It's in the very uh, first four or five words in the Hebrew text. There was a great outcry of the people. What does that remind you of earlier in the Bible? When before did God's people have a, an outcry because they were oppressed? It's right at the beginning of Exodus. It's, it's God hearing the outcry of Israel in Egypt when Pharaoh was oppressing them. And you also see it in Exodus 22. If you uh, go there, verse 23, you'll see the same thing. When the poor cry out to me, I'm going to hear their cry. And if you don't help them, it's so much the worse for you. And it goes on. But the, the word outcry and cry is over and over in the Levitical law about helping the poor. The poor are going to cry out when they're in need. And you need to hear that cry. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here. There's an outcry of the poor, and Nehemiah hears it and responds. So the point here is that God's word relates to our real lives far more often, far more intensely than we think. You know, this, this text is all about finances and poverty and being destitute. And we often disconnect that kind of thing, the economy, our employment, from God's word and theology and such. No, it's all very much interrelated. If you just take the Old Testament law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, do you realize what kind of situations are described there? It's, it's called case law. It's often very situational, right? It, if a man's ox falls into a ditch, it starts out with situations like that, right? Most of those situations that are in the, the Old Testament law are, are awkward situations they're real-life situations, and they're often catastrophic situations. What do you do with an unsolved murder? That's in there. What do you do when two young people have sex before marriage? That's in there. What if you lend your ox, or some expensive industrial equipment, say, to a friend, and there's an accident, and it's wrecked? That's in there. Those kind of situations are in God's law. What if you're so poor you have to sell your house or your land? 
God's word has solutions to these problems. And I'm convinced Nehemiah applied the word to consider this situation. Well, back to the original question, was this usury or was it interest? Uh, And realize we ask that question because we wonder today if loaning money at interest is legit between believers. That's something that comes up if you're going to read the Old Testament law and say, looks like it doesn't. Uh, The answer is it depends on what it is for. It depends what it's for. If it's for charity, if you're helping a, a poor person to get out of that poverty then no interest is allowed by God's law. Notice, though, that it can be very helpful to loan the poor money and expect it back as they can pay. That's actually a a really good system. There's some accountability in that that is important. Uh, But here, Nehemiah has the nobles forgive much of these loans that they get. He says, just give them back all the, the property. Right? And, and that's because the loans, the contracts, were exploitative and forbidden by God. You need to undo that and just give it back. Now, that doesn't mean that all loans to anyone for any reason must be forgiven. No, uh, no interest for loans for charity is the point. Uh, so that's, if the loan is for that, then no interest is allowed. But I do follow John Kelvin, who said if, if the loan is for a business enterprise, uh, then market interest is legitimate and allowed and even expected. That, that's not for the poor. And the law in Scripture uh, specifies this is for lending for the poor to help them in their poverty. Uh, but if, you're, if it's a business enterprise, then market interest, I believe, is allowed. With a business degree, I know a little bit about the time value of money, right, in economics. And God does not go against that in his law. But the rich who can help the poor should not think in terms of the time value of money. They should be willing to give up that value to help those who are less fortunate. That's the whole point. And that is biblical social justice. And I use that term provocatively. You know, social justice is a crazy thing today. Let's define it biblically. What's going on? It's described in Acts 2.44, where the church helps anyone as they have need. Right? It's in James 2, where we're called upon to help those in need and not just wish them well. It's in 1 Timothy 6, and I'll quote this one, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. So that's the idea. And Nehemiah is appealing to the nobles, the rulers, the wealthy in Jerusalem, saying, hey, you need to help the poor and not take advantage of them. That's what they were doing. Now the civil law, the the laws of our state and of our country, uh, may not require biblical social justice. Uh, Our state laws may allow exploitative practices. Uh, Title loans come to mind, or 23% interest on credit cards, for example. But that doesn't make it right in God's eyes. And Nehemiah was right to condemn it then, and I think Christians should call it out when it happens now. So no, no um, well, the, the term we sometimes use today is no predatory business practices, right? Now a separate point of application is this. If you are in need yourself, if you find yourself in need, 
Be careful who you go to for help. Be careful who you go to for help. You can get yourself in deeper trouble by trying to keep your needs secret from your friends and going to the world for solutions. Because then you might find yourselves in the hands of these predatory loan sharks or whatever it is. You can get yourself in deeper trouble by not asking for help soon enough from the right sources. When you're in need and, and have, have a need like that, it, it's uh, often a, an embarrassing thing and people pile shame on themselves and, and they won't ask for help. And that puts up barriers to fellowship and community among God's people. We're right, I think, to emphasize uh, individual responsibility and hard work. Uh, th that's always uh, the first solution. But there are occasions of extreme need that call for the community to help. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah 5. So needs like that are going to come to light in a community. We share the joys, we share the troubles in our lives with each other. And that's what, what we find here. There's a great outcry of the people. So all of that on the, on the problem uh, so far. And then verse 6 through 8, we have the conviction. We have the conviction of sin. Nehemiah is angry about it. But then verse 7, after serious thought, notice there he's, he's not just reacting out of emotion. He's, he's got emotion. This, this, this makes him mad. But he needs to think this through carefully before he takes action, which he often does. Nehemiah is courageous here. He rebukes nobles and rulers. And you can run past that phrase pretty fast, but stop and think about that. Nobles and rulers, right? Those are the ones with, with the influence in society, in the community. Nehemiah is rich and powerful himself, we'll see. But I think if you put all the Jewish nobility together against him, he would have a really hard time of it. And he goes to the wealthy and the powerful and he confronts them with their sin. He describes it clearly, verse 7 and 8. You're charging interest so much that you're impoverishing them. They even have to sell their children to pay their debts to you. Uh, I think he also heads off possible objections. Uh, one objection that uh, we could possibly raise is, hey, look, they agreed to the contract. So now they're bound by the contract. That's something that we sometimes put up as a defense uh, against business practices that are a little bit shady. Well, they agreed to it. So, so well, too bad. And Nehemiah says, hey, that's not the point. You should not have drawn up such an exploitative contract in the first place. That, again, is the social justice of Scripture. Nehemiah reasons with them. He uses common sense and Bible history. He says, hey, we paid a lot of money to free some of these people back in Persia. And now you're enslaving them to you again. Just like in Persia. Just like in Egypt. Are you going to take the part of Pharaoh to your fellow Israelites and oppress them like Pharaoh did? It's quite an intense conviction of sin. So Nehemiah uh, makes this courageous stand. Uh, for an application for that, two things. Uh, one is just in our personal relationships, uh, we need to be willing to do this uh, and uh, to be as courageous as Nehemiah was. I'm not sure of the power dynamics here. Maybe Nehemiah had all the power and it wasn't all that courageous of him. But I tend to think with the nobility, uh, there's a fair bit of uh, intimidation uh, to do this. And in your relationships, maybe it's a boss that you have. 
that you need to say something about his whatever it is, his behavior, his language, but he's the one who's given you a job. Well, sometimes you need to say something anyway. Or in your family, say a 16-year-old daughter sees her father treating her mother badly. That daughter should say something to her father, and he should listen to her. There's conviction of sin, uh, um, holding people to account that should happen when there are difficulties. Parents in families, parents should watch out for patterns of injustice in their homes. If it's the kids never chipping in with the chores and mom has to do it all, or if it's one child getting mistreated by another repeatedly, uh, have to watch out for that and deal with that. That's, that too is, is a social justice. So in our personal relationships, we need to hold one another accountable. In mercy, in love, of course, but to make sure that we're doing justice with one another. The second point is to realize here that Nehemiah is a state official. He's the governor, and he's confronting private citizens. So this is a a political point here. It cuts against the grain of my free market politics a bit, but it must be said. There's a role for the state to outlaw exploiting the poor. There's a role for the state to criminalize predatory business practices. The the state shouldn't, I don't think, should just take a libertarian response and say, hey, whatever contract you signed up for, that's your call. Sometimes the response is, hey, you make bad choices and you become poor. Part of the consequences is that there will be less good choices for you. Tough luck. Make better choices. Now, there's some truth to that, I grant, but the rich may not be allowed to take advantage. They need to help the poor back onto their feet and not take advantage of them in a difficult situation. That's what Nehemiah's getting at. It made me think of the Heidelberg Catechism this week. There's a a great section on the Eighth Commandment, uh, Thou shalt not steal. I think Westminster also deals with this well, but I picked out the the Heidelberg today. Here's most of the answer on the Eighth Commandment. In God's sight, theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. So you see the point there. And again, this is describing predatory business practices. That in turn made me think of the old song about the mining town, you know, the old company towns that would oppress their employers in that way. I can never think of the song without thinking of Johnny Cash's gravelly voice. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Right? There were practices like that uh, back in those days. That's what the scripture and this text specifically are addressing. So Nehemiah confronts these uh, nobles with their sin. He also gives them a solution. Remember, Nehemiah never comes at a problem, but he has a solution. Verses 9 through 11, he gives the solution. Uh, They were silenced, and then he says, what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? There's the first thing, the the theological foundation. The fear of God is the basis for our financial dealings. 
for, it, for anything that we do. And it doesn't rule out anything. Treat people as fellow believers or as bearers of the image of God. Don't treat people as a business deal to get advantage from. That's the foundation. Nehemiah says in verse 10 that he's been lending to the poor as well. He doesn't say he's charging interest, but he is lending to the poor. So he's appealing to the nobles saying, hey, I'm lending to the, to the poor just like you guys are. Let's just all make sure we're not charging any interest for this because God's law doesn't allow that. Right? So he, he rhetorically makes a nice move where he puts himself in their same boat. Right? We're all lending to the poor here. Let's make sure we're doing it the right way. And then uh, verse 11, you get some of the specifics. Restore to them their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. And then the second half of the verse is uh, the things that those things produce. Right? The money, the grain, the new wine, the oil. So he's, he's saying, give them back their income-producing property and give back what you charge that you shouldn't have from these contracts. Uh, the, the thing about the hundredth is kind of odd. Nobody's really sure. Uh, the best of the commentators that I read, it's still only speculation. But when it says the hundredth, they speculate that that means 1% interest per month. So every hundredth that I, I give you, you've got to pay back a hundredth of that, 1% per month. On the groceries that they're borrowing, grain, wine, oil, right? The basics that you need to scratch together a meal, they have to pay 12% interest. Well, it's more than that when it's compounded, but 1% interest per month. So if that's true, it's very much like the poor today who have to pay a whole lot of interest because they can't pay it back when they put their groceries on a credit card. It's very, very similar to that. And they'll be further in debt. Nehemiah insists they give the interest back that they charged. Well, we get to verse 12, and here I think is the miracle of the chapter. It's, revival always, and reformation always is a work of God in the heart. And God moves us to obey him. And it's a, it's, an, it's a supernatural act. Verse 12, they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's astonishing, frankly. They, they listen to God's word. They decide, okay, I need to back out of this deal that I'm making a bank on because it's being unhelpful. It's hurting the other side. This, this isn't right. And so they back out. They agree. It's astounding. Uh, I'm going to take a moment to make a, a point that's a little counterintuitive that you may disagree with. Um, I'd be glad to talk about this with you afterwards. Um, so don't take this so much as a thus saith the Lord from the pulpit necessarily. But I think this is the real reformation. When the leaders of the people change course... And here's the part you may disagree with a bit. We tend to think that the Reformation came about because Luther finally spoke the truth. Right? And we, we put the pastors on the pedestal and say, once the word was being faithfully preached, the Reformation came. I don't think that's the whole story. The real Reformation happened when Luther's patron, Elector Frederick, supported him and stood up to Rome and said, Nope, we're not going to do that. And action was taken. There were lots of forerunners to Luther who were calling for reform in the church. 
But it wasn't until the nobility and the people changed course. Then there was a reformation. We're going to see a real revival in our land when the people, the nobles, the small business owners, the corporations change course. When Pfizer stops funding Satan worship, for example. When the gay pride flags come down in our coffee shops. There are vast numbers of pulpits uh, every Sunday in our land denouncing unbiblical policies. But when the nobles and the people repent, then revival comes. Reformation doesn't happen automatically just because the word is preached faithfully. The spirit must enable a faithful response in the hearers. That's what I think happens here in verse 12. The, the, uh, God works in the hearts of these nobles to respond faithfully to the word. Nehemiah verse 12 then brings in the priests to bear witness and make it a legal promise. Remember the priests also act as judges in this time. And so Nehemiah realistically holds the nobles accountable legally. Right? Business deals like this should be written down, attested to legally. Uh, some idealistic believers fight this. You know, my word should be good enough. Don't have to sign a contract. But the point of the contract isn't a lack of trust. It's clear expectations and terms to know what's expected. And so uh, Nehemiah holds them to account. And, and the, the shaking out of the, the garment in verse 13, that's something uh, too. If we're unfair to the poor such that they lose their houses then God would be just to throw us out of our house too. That's Nehemiah's um, warning to them at that point. That's the first half of the chapter. The second half I'll go through a lot quicker here. It's Nehemiah's generosity. Uh, Nehemiah is a true public servant uh, who's giving from his own resources for the community instead of taking from the community. It, the Persian king, and I think the people in Jerusalem too, they were obligated to offer Nehemiah, as the governor, a salary. And it was offered. But Nehemiah was free to decline it. And he did. This is why we read from 1 Corinthians 9 again. Right? The church ought to provide support for a pastor, but the pastor is also free to decline it, as he's able. So Nehemiah looks around at what the people can afford, and he sees that it's not much. And he looks at what he can afford, and it's quite a bit. And so he acts accordingly. So part of the point here is that Nehemiah was a good personal example of what he was calling for in the nobles. Right? Down in verse 17, uh, many of those 150 people are Jews and rulers, it says. I think a lot of them were the same nobles that Nehemiah calls out up in verse 12. Same people, often. Nehemiah has been generous all along. So when he convicts them of a lack of it, there's no hypocrisy in him that they can object to. So uh, Nehemiah is being generous. Uh, make a point about uh, Nehemiah uh, being like Christ again, and then a couple uh, final application points. Uh, Nehemiah, again, here in this chapter, just as in previous chapters, is a type of Christ. He's our generous governor. He calls us to do justice with each other, to love mercy, because he has freely given us his very self. That's what he's been doing. When he convicts Israel of sin, uh, there's a point at which Jesus bluntly says, 
Which of you convicts me of sin? <laughs> he knows that they can't do it. He is perfectly righteous. Nehemiah is a type of that here. He calls out the sin of the people uh, when he is doing the right thing. Uh, Nehemiah was above reproach as Jesus was. Jesus lifts up the poor. He relieves them of their burdens. He cleanses the temple of predatory business practices. There's a lot of similarities between Jesus and Nehemiah. So uh, something there to consider. And, and now we're talking here too, if, if, if I'm going to say social justice, I better talk a little bit about that. We're talking here about true hardship and not just any inequality. Right? Uh, often today when social justice comes up in the political uh, conversation, it, the protest is against, against the inequality. Uh, well, there's some obvious inequality in this chapter. If you read this closely, consider just verses 4 and 5 and 17. Right? Verses 4 and 5, the people are so poor, they have to sell their children into slavery. They're destitute. Nehemiah 5, verse 17. Notice Nehemiah's condition. Nehemiah has an ox and six choice sheep on his dinner table every night. He is way better off than a lot of the people. There is obvious economic inequality. You know, they, many of the people can't scrape together enough rice and beans to live on. Now, is that some kind of systemic economic failure? Is it a crime on Nehemiah's part? The answer is no. But the point of the text is that it does call for action. It does call for Nehemiah and the nobles to lend generously to the poor. And that's what we see in verse 10, Nehemiah's doing. So the, the social justice warrior would call out for a forced wealth transfer from Nehemiah and the nobles to the poor by means of higher taxes. But there is no hint of that in God's word anywhere. In fact, quite the reverse. High taxes are a part of the burden. So in, in response, Nehemiah cuts his state budget. He spends way less to relieve the tax burden on the people. So that's one of the points here about social justice. We're talking about true hardship, and you don't um, take drastic measures just because there's some inequality in the system somewhere. Uh, there's voluntary charity that should be addressing that. The world's definition of social justice has come to mean any inequality is a problem for the state to fix. Uh, and that would give the state unlimited control. And it is not biblical justice. We know this, I think. But if we don't act according to Nehemiah's alternative solution, if we're just fine with the exploitation, if we don't lend generously to the poor, are we really much better? That's the call for us as well. Love must act to be known. James 2, verse 15, we know it well. But we can't just say to the poor, be warm and well fed and send them on their way. If you don't actually do something, then isn't your faith just empty, James says. So I close with a, an action, a call to action. I'd encourage you to volunteer uh, with local places like Love, Inc. or the Brighton Pregnancy Center. 
Get involved and serve with any extra margin of time or money that you have. Lend generously to the poor as you have uh, capability. Nehemiah here is pursuing biblical social justice, serving his people sacrificially. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, your word is uh, often comforting. It is sometimes convicting. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, show us uh, how we can take uh, concrete steps uh, to help those in need to be doing justice with one another. Uh, those we deal with every day in our families, our workplaces, uh, those we interact with uh, less frequently, perhaps here at church uh, or our neighbors. Lord, keep us mindful of true biblical justice uh, to be fair in our dealings with others. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the ability to be productive uh, for employment. We pray, Lord, again, that you would provide that for those who are seeking it. We pray, Lord, that your uh, provision would be, uh, would be met in the marketplace. We thank you for that uh, provision that you give to us. We pray for leaders in society, both public and private, who would look to your word uh, for our rule in these areas. Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for our Savior Jesus, who has uh, given to us uh, so, so abundantly out of his uh, generosity. We come before you in the name of Jesus, and we sing now as he taught us to Verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Thus far the reading of God's word. In a family or in a church, there are differences among individuals. School comes easy for one child, but not for another. One is introverted, another is extroverted. Some are richer, some are poorer. But when we come to the Lord's table, we want to set aside many of these differences and make a more important point. We are all getting the same Jesus here, and he doesn't leave anyone out in his family. Just because the five-year-old isn't an income producer yet doesn't mean he gets less Jesus. Just because Mr. Smith makes a lot less money than Mr. Jones doesn't mean he gets less Jesus. This is why we wait for each other and hand out the same size portions to everyone of the bread and the wine, because the cliche is true. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. To use the modern terms, which may make you cringe a little bit, there is a time to focus on our diversity, on how each member of the body is differently gifted to help the body do its thing. Here at the table, we focus more on our equality before the Lord. He has saved all of us in the same way. The sacrifice of a completely righteous God-man on the cross, atoning for our sins, 
setting aside God's wrath from us to his own son. son. So he does that so that we might come back into the garden, back into paradise, to God's presence, to eat from the tree of life. So come, for all things are now ready. These are gifts of God for the people of God. We do invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized into the triune God, those who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. As we eat the bread and drink the wine together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.